All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the word of God together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this morning to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, to learn more about your word, and to be challenged with the truthfulness, the accuracy, the veracity of your word, that what we believe is not something that is grounded upon fables, it's not something grounded upon myths or legends, it's not something that is uh, grounded upon human intellect or reason, but it is grounded upon that which has been revealed inerrantly, infallibly by you to us, and that you not only oversaw the uh, methodology, you oversaw the process, but you guaranteed the results that they would be without error. And therefore, we have something true, something that is accurate, that we can base our lives on. Like you, it is a rock, and it is the source of our stability, for it is your very thinking. As Paul says, the Word of God is the thinking of Christ. We have the thinking of Christ. So, Father, we pray that as we study about your Word today, that we would be challenged by it. God the Holy Spirit would use this to strengthen our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have had other people needing to use... Uh, my computer this morning, so now we'll back it up and get going. Okay, this morning what I want to do is give an opening. Am I plugged in? Why is that not? Eddie or somebody, why do I not have a projection going on here? John, you know? The movie's off. off, right? Yeah. Close it out just to make sure. And I will go back and make sure this works. Okay, there we go. Okay, we are starting this week the uh, Chafer Conference. We started in 2006, so this is our 12th year uh, with the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference where we have hosted that here at West Houston Bible Church. And the theme of the conference this year is on uh, inerrancy and interpretation, learning about the present battle for the Bible. And that, as we'll see this morning, there has been a battle for the Bible that has gone on for a number of centuries. If the Bible is the Word of God and it is absolute truth, then we can expect there to be a battle, a focal point against the truthfulness, against the accuracy of the scripture. I thought I would start off just talking a little bit about Chafer Seminary. We started Chafer Seminary originally in Southern California, and it was named 
after Lewis Sperry Chafer, a name that may not be familiar to some of you. He was the uh, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he had a particular philosophy of ministry that is very important. He himself did not know Greek, and he did not know Hebrew, but he understood that for uh, men to be able to teach the word in such a way that people could grow and understand and get below the surface of the text and really understand what God had revealed to us, that we needed to know the original languages. Now, Dr. Chafer lived at a time when there was a battle for the Bible going on. It was called at that time the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. Modernism was the name that they used at that time for what uh, we, I usually refer to as 19th century Protestant liberalism. And it was called modernism because they were going to modernize their understanding of Scripture, that we were no longer going to think like those uh, darkened minds of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, but we were going to be, that we were the products of the Enlightenment, and so we were modern men. And we didn't necessarily believe the myths and fables, the miracles, virgin birth, all these kinds of supernatural things in the scripture. And so there had been this huge battle going on. And as a result of that, the major denominations in America that had all split in the 1850s over the slavery issue because those in the north didn't want to give their money to missions to support missionaries who came from the south who might own slaves. So these denominations had already been weakened. And during that context of the last half of the 19th century, denominations would often send their pastors off to get those uh, elite degrees from schools in Germany or England or France, in some cases the Northeast here, and they came back to their congregations having lost their faith in the veracity, the truthfulness, the infallibility of the Scripture. And so they began to teach these new doctrines, and they questioned whether the Word of God was the, the, identical with the Scripture. They doubted the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Scripture, that the Bible was no longer the Word of God, it was the Word of man. They doubted things such as miracles, the virgin birth, the uh, sinfulness of sin, and the need for a substitutionary uh, atonement. They doubted the future return of Christ, along with many, many other things. And this led to massive church splits across the country. And many of the historically great seminaries uh, across the country shifted to liberalism, to Protestant liberalism. And as a result of that, those institutions were lost. And it was in the context in the late 19th century when you had these what was known as the Bible Conference Movement, where you had speakers like Dwight Moody, who was the founder of Moody Bible Institute. You had others such as C.I. Schofield, who was the uh, author of the Schofield Notes for the Schofield Reference Bible. And you had this young buck who came up who was a protege mentored by C.I. Schofield named Lewis Berry Chafer. The story is told, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that, that one day Schofield turned to his young protege and said, Lewis, someday you may make a passably good Bible teacher. He had started off as a musical evangelist. He played the trumpet, his wife sang, 
And he was mentored by Schofield, and some have said that actually his first book, He That Is Spiritual, I don't know if that was his first book, but his book on the spiritual life was really shaped by the conversations he had with Schofield. Schofield was getting older by this time, and uh, Chafer traveled with him a lot, and so that that Chafer's views on the spiritual life were shaped directly by that time with with C.I. Schofield. And Chafer was, uh, as I said, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. It is Chafer's philosophy of ministry as well as his theology that influenced the men who founded Chafer Theological Seminary. So I thought I'd start with a couple of quotes from Chafer in his section on bibliology in, I believe it's volume one, of his uh, seven-volume systematic theology. He said, The Bible is a phenomenon which is explainable in but one way. It is the Word of God. It is not such a book as man would write if he could or could write if he would. It's a great statement. I've heard it quoted many times, ran across it this morning. He was a firm believer in what we talk about as the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. For the Scripture is not the word of man about God. The Scripture does not contain the word of God. That would indicate that there's portions of the Scripture that are not the word of God. But that the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis uh, 22, I mean to Revelation 22-21 is the word of God and that every word was breathed out by God and that it is important above everything else for the pastor for, to be a theologian and for the pastor as a theologian to be grounded upon the Word of God. He should be a biblicist. Chafer said the theologian must be a biblicist, one who is not only a biblical scholar, but also a believer in the divine character of each and every portion of the text of the Bible. That's what it means to be a biblicist. You ground everything ultimately in the Word of God. He also wrote that the student who, in spite of the claims of the Bible to be the Word of God, is yet groping for added light on that aspect of truth, cannot even begin the study of systematic theology. And there are many who aren't sure about the authority, the infallibility, the inerrancy of Scripture. And he says you can't even begin to think about systematic theology. You can't begin to think about God if you doubt your source of information. So what I want to do in this introduction to our conference is talk a little bit about what you can expect at the conference and to, in this short time, shorter now, um, Answer, three, answer these seven questions. First of all, give you an understanding of the definition of what is meant by inerrancy and what is meant by interpretation. Second, answer the question, what do we as Chafer Seminary and also West Bible Church, what do we believe about these things? Third, why do we believe this? Fourth, why these two topics? Why have we chosen inerrancy and interpretation? 
and what is their connection to one another. Fifth, what is the history of the battle for the Bible? Just to give you a brief overview, because there will be things that are said, things that are taught in this conference that presuppose a certain knowledge and some terms that will be used. And so I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to some of those terms and some of those ideas so it makes a little more sense to you. Six, we'll look at the text. What does the Bible claim for itself? And seventh, what's the implication for every one of us? First of all, I'll answer the first two questions together, what, defining the terms inerrancy and interpretation, and also what do we believe about these things. And I took these definitions from the Chafer Theological Seminary uh, doctrinal statement. First of all, we talk about God's revelation, the basic meaning of the word revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis, which is the the last book of the Bible, is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ to John, the Apostle John. Uh, the term apocalypsis means an unveiling, a disclosure, and that's the core idea of revelation. God is unveiling himself. He is disclosing who he is, who man is, what his plan for mankind is, and what his plan of redemption is, as well as his plan for the future. So revelation, when we talk about that in this technical theological sense, it refers to the written content of the Bible, and that we, by Bible we mean the 66 books of the canon of Scripture, the standard of Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, that this written content was revealed by God. He is the ultimate author. We believe in dual authorship, that there is a divine author and a human author, but the human author is, is the instrument or the means by which the divine author unveils or discloses himself to mankind. So the Bible was revealed by God in order to unveil himself and his eternal plan to mankind. Now, a lot of people will say that God has revealed himself, but but then they get fuzzy on the mechanics of that and how that took place and the quality of that uh, that process. That it, process is covered by the next word, the word inspiration. Now, sometimes we talk about uh, great artists, musicians, uh, visual artists, painters, writers, that, ah, that was just inspired what you said. That's not how this word is used in the Bible. This is a distinctive word. It really means to breathe out, not to breathe in. Uh, inspiration is based, as we'll see, on a Greek word, theopneustos, which means that God breathed it out through these men. And so uh, it's through inspiration, the doctrinal statement says, that God moved holy men, the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, to write, the Lord made certain that his revelation about himself was recorded without error in the original documents. That's it. That's inerrancy right there. That in the original documents, not in your translation, not in your NASB, New King James, NET, whatever, uh, that's a translation. Not even the Nestle Alon text, 
or the majority text was inspired, because those are copies of copies of copies. It's the original documents. Now, some people say, well, we don't have the originals anymore. But, but that doesn't matter, because we have so many copies. Well, well, there's some differences, yes, but these differences are minor. Now, if I were to take a letter or a historical document, we could take the preamble to the Constitution, and if I were to dictate that to you and you were to write it down, we would find some errors. If we gathered up all of those, we would find some disagreements. Some people would transpose words and they would do other standard copyist type errors. But by collating them together, we could still recover what the original was if we didn't have it. Okay, so just because we don't have the original doesn't mean we don't know what the original said. So, and if you're starting with an errant document, if you're starting with a document that has flaws and errors in it, then you're still going to have flaws and errors no matter what. You'll never get anything that's close to truth. So starting with an inerrant document guarantees that you can come close to understanding the original. The Chafer Seminary doctrinal statement goes on to say, every facet of scripture, including statements that regard science, history, and geography, is God-breathed. Every facet is God-breathed. Now, that's important. The Bible is not a book on science or geography or history, but when it touches on those things, it speaks about them infallibly and without error and authoritatively. Third term is interpretation. The more accurate term is hermeneutics. Interpretation is the science and the art of discovering the meaning of what a speaker or a writer has said. Uh, there are canons, or the word canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. We do not shoot people with the canon of Scripture. We hold them to the standards of the canon of Scripture. We believe in a normal, that is a literal interpretation, uh, it's called a normal, grammatical, and historical interpretation. Each of those terms has significant meaning. And it indicates that we take the language of Scripture as we would take any form of communication that we study. And we understand it. We know that there are figures of speech, there's idioms, there's metaphor, there's similes, there's all kinds of different figures but that those figures mean something specifically and are designed to communicate specific things. So we interpret the Bible in terms of the normal use of language, and that includes understanding the opening 11 chapters of Genesis as uh, as literal, and we believe in a seven literal 24-hour days of creation. So that helps us understand the meaning of these terms. Now, why do we believe this? Why do we believe um, that the Bible is to be interpreted literally and that the Bible is without error? And it's really simple, because the Bible says so. That's the way it teaches that it has been revealed to us, that it is without error. And when the Bible interprets itself, it interprets itself literally. 
It doesn't go off into various uh, allegorical interpretations unless it specifically says so. But in that process, there's only one place I know of that in Scripture, and that's when Paul is talking about Hagar and Sarah in, in Galatians. He identifies it as such, but he doesn't deny in the process the literal historicity of of Hagar and Sarah or what happened. He is simply saying they also represent a, another another truth. Biblical authority is predicated upon these three legs of this stool. Inspiration that God breathed out his word through the authors of scripture. Therefore, because it is sourced in God, it is infallible and bears the marks of his divine authority and therefore it is inerrant. If you knock off any one of those three legs of the stool, then Christian belief collapses. Without the inerrancy of Scripture, what do, how do we know what to believe and what uh, not to believe? So we believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible because this is what the Bible teaches positively. But negatively, we don't believe this because of a prior commitment to a theological position. We don't believe this because this is what Lewis Berry Chafer taught. We don't believe this because this is what uh, the Hodges, Casper uh, uh, Hodge, A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, Charles Hodge, these were the great uh, theologians at Princeton Seminary who really ha- helped systematize this doctrine in the 19th century, uh, Benjamin, along with Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield, who I'll quote in a little bit. Uh, we don't believe it because they said so. We believe it because the Bible says so. And that is our ground of authority. Third, we don't believe this because of a... Uh, excuse me, I just copied that over. And didn't, we don't believe this because of a prior commitment to a, a denominational position. That's what that should read, a denominational position. We're not committed to this. Some people say, well, we believe the Bible's Word of God because we're Baptists. Or we don't believe the Bible's the Word of God because we're Methodists. Uh, or we believe in the Bible plus tradition because we're Roman Catholic. That is believing something because that's a denominational position. But we don't take our view of the Bible because of a denominational, a prior denominational commitment. Fourth, we don't believe this because of philosophical presupposition. That is the influence of something like Scottish common sense philosophy. Now, if I asked you who knows what Scottish common sense philosophy is, I bet only one or two here have ever even heard the term before. But yet this was a dominant view that came out of Scottish thought in the Scottish Enlightenment at the end of the 1700s and beginning of the 1800s. And for those modernist uh, theologians who reject the inerrancy of Scripture and also, by the way, dispensationalism, their critique of us and uh, especially of the Princetonian theologians who formulated this idea of the, the, the really formulated, systematized the doctrine, doctrine, doctrines of inerrancy and fallibility, they'd say, no, nah, they didn't get that from the Bible. They got it because of their prior commitment to Scottish common sense philosophy. That's what shaped their worldview. And so that's why they hold that. 
Now that is a common belief, and it has been taught from from lecterns and pulpits uh, for the last thirty or forty years. I first started hearing that first started becoming popular when I was a student at Dallas. Now one of our pres- presenters this week is David Roseland, pastor of Preston City Bible Church. And David is doing a, going to do a great paper on that. And it's very important if you're a pastor, if you're a Bible teacher, if you're interested in understanding this, to understand what he has to say is going to be a great insight into, uh, into, uh, understanding the, these critiques of those who believe in inerrancy. Fourth question I'm answering this morning is why do these, why these two topics and what is their connection. Now that's important because it's one thing to say that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's inerrant. But you can destroy that by the method by which you interpret the text. You can come along and say, as one professor has said by the name of Michael Lycona, who is now a professor of theology at Houston Baptist University, and he wrote a book, his original book was on the resurrection of Jesus, called uh, A New Historiographical Approach. And in that, he sets forth a not uncommon view today, one that is held by some professors I know at Dallas Seminary, and as well as other schools, and that is that we have to understand that the Gospels are not a unique literary a form that was inspired by God, but they followed the standard of this bios, using the Greek word B-I-O-S, this bios genre of the Greco-Roman world. And he writes, quote, although the Gospels do not possess all of the internal or external features of ancient biography, they do not differ from the genre to any greater degree than other uh, other works at that time. In other words, they have at least as much in common with Greco-Roman bioi as the bioi have with each other. And so he's going to use this external genre category to say they weren't accurate in the sense that we expect historical biography to be accurate today. They're going to include elements of myth and legend and hearsay, and so we should not expect the biblical text to be accurate in this modern sense of accuracy. And so what they, what he does is he, that dehistoricizes the text. And one of the things that he has done as a result of that is in Matthew 27, 51 to 53, which talks about the fact that there are Old Testament saints who are buried in Jerusalem, who are resurrected at the time of the crucifixion, and they walk the streets of Jerusalem. He says, that didn't really happen. That's just an element of this kind of resurrection genre, and we don't know that it it didn't really happen. It's just legend. And so he uh, casts doubt on the historicity of the text. Well, wait a minute. If you don't believe that that is historically accurate, what about the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe that's just part of this embellished legend of resurrection genre. Uh, so if Jesus didn't actually physically bodily rise from the dead, what about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus didn't rise physically bodily from the grave, then we are 
uh, a foolish beyond all people. We have no hope left. And so this is part of the problem. So hermeneutics or how you interpret the scripture can dis- you can on the one hand say I believe that the scripture is 100% accurate but then you created an interpretive framework that destroys its historicity. They do the same thing in Old Testament studies with Genesis 1 through 11. So you create this dichotomy now where you believe and affirm on the one hand the inerrancy of the text, but you destroy it by your means of interpretation. So we're going to have two talks this week that deal with that to some degree. Some of what Wayne House is talking about in interpretation is going to deal with that. Uh, There's also going to be a a talk during the day on Wednesday uh, by uh, Dave Farnell dealing specifically with that. There was a whole book that he co-authored called The Jesus Crisis, Uh, with uh, Bob Thomas, who was a speaker at the Chafer Conference about uh, eight or nine years ago, and uh, he's going to deal with that. And then Andy Woods on Wednesday is going to uh, also have a presentation called Apocalyptic Genre and Inerrancy. And he first wrote this uh, when he was taking a class in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary on Apocalyptic Genre, where they were falling into this same trap. So it's it's important. Now you may say, well, you know, I'm not a pastor. I don't need to know all of this. Let me tell you, most people in this congregation are going to be part of a congregation that calls a pastor at some time in your life. And these pastors are going to have already bought into some of these minefields. And as a congregant, you need to be well-informed. You're going to be listening to Christian radio. You're going to hear some of this stuff. It is becoming normative today. We've been in this battle for the Bible for some time. So let me just briefly touch on the history of the battle for the Bible. Up until the end of the 1500s, in Christendom, in Western Christendom, the authority and the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Scripture was Assumed. This was the testimony of the early church fathers, the testimonies of the uh, mid, uh, theologians of the Middle Ages. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. Protestant reformers affirmed uh, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. They might not have used that, those identical words, but that is how they handled the Scripture. But then in the early part of the 1700s, specifically starting after November the 10th, 1619, you have the beginning of the early Enlightenment philosophers. And I know that, that some people say the Enlightenment doesn't start until the 1700s. There's a lot of debate over that. But I place it when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he's trying to find a place to set his, to ground his thinking other than anything that purports to be religious or revelational. And so he starts off doubting everything. And uh, then he's trying to doubt his own existence, but because he thinks, he knows he must exist. He has self-consciousness. So he says, cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. With that shift in thought in the Enlightenment in Western civilization in the history of ideas, man became the measure of all truth. God has to be judged by human standards. That's what that means. Man becomes the measure. 
by the midpoint of the of the 18th century, in the mid-1700s, you get a pietistic scholar at the pietistic seminary at Halle in Germany by the name of Johann Simmler. He challenges, his father was a theologian, he rejected his father's teaching on verbal inspiration, and he rejects that, and in its place he substitutes something called historical criticism. There's a lot I can say about historical criticism. You can look that up. Historical criticism gives birth to source criticism, informed criticism, and a number of other things. And, and basically what it does, it, it says man, it's, it's up to man and his reason to determine what of the scripture is the word of God. Okay? It, man determines truth, not God through his revela- revelation. The, this influences uh, theology for the next hundred years or so and gives birth, full-blown birth, to what is known as 19th century German Protestant liberalism. German Protestant liberalism is the grandfather of Nazism. It is extremely influential in the development of Nazi thought. Uh, it changes the way people think about man and culture. It, it's very influential. Uh, it is, uh, I, I, the early rationalists they were not only Descartes, but the three, big three you study are Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza. And so one of our, uh, presentations this week is going to be from Mark Musser. That's going to be on Monday afternoon and his paper is titled, I tried to make it sexy, but he just couldn't come up with anything sexy, but it's an important topic, Theological Romanticism, Higher Criticism, and Postmodern Fascism. And his subtitle says, Thanks to the Contributions of Spinoza. Okay? So all of this goes back. If you understand why people think the way they think today, you have to study the history of ideas. The, these things are, are, are important, and they impact how people understand all areas of reality. Why you, you, many of you are political conservatives. Where did the idea come from that the Constitution is a living document? It goes right back to all these same ideas. This is important to understand the world around us. So 19th century German Protestant liberalism also gave birth to the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And then in the 60s and 70s, you had Battle for the Bible Part um, part 2, the first part being the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And Harold Linzel, the former editor of Christianity Today, wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible. Now we're in The Battle for the Bible Part 3. So historical criticism basically believes the central basically believes as their central error that uh, it is, excuse me, let me restate this. They believe that the central error of Christianity is the interchangeable use of Scripture and the Word of God, that saying that the Bible is Scripture, that the Word of God is Scripture. I ran into this when I was a student at University of St. Thomas here. I had to take a Protestant theology course, and he was a liberal 
uh, Protestant theologian. He said the Bible contains the Word of God. It isn't the Word of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say everything in the Bible is the Word of God. And it's true about that. There's no place it says everything in the 66 books is the Word of God. But everywhere else it says that. I mean, it implies that. But it doesn't have one sentence that says these 66 books are the Word of God and the Scripture. Okay, so they hang their hat on that, basically. Historical criticism presupposes the autonomy of man. Man is the measure that man determines what the Word of God is. And third, it separates the Word of God from the Bible. The Bible contains the Word of God. So it's up to you to find what parts of the Bible are the Word of God. And for some of you, it's going to be this little part. For others of you, it's this little part. And it's when you have this existential experience with some part of the Bible and you think that's the Word of God that suddenly... Now it becomes the Word of God in your experience. It's not objectively the truth. So fourth, the higher critic begins with the presupposition that God cannot reveal himself to man. This is their presupposition. It can't be God's Word to man. That just can't happen. That's their presupposition. The Bible, though, is God's revelation to man. That's just a brief overview. So what does the Bible claim for itself? This is stuff that we've studied many times. Paul refers to the Old Testament. When he's talking about Timothy, he grew up studying and becoming familiar and knowing the sacred writings. That's the Old Testament. They're sacred writings. They're holy writings. They're distinct writings. And then he goes on to say about them that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the word theopneustos I refer to. God breathed it out. God is the source, the ultimate source of everything in the Scripture, and therefore everything in the Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This happened through the process of God the Holy Spirit working in and through the writers of Scripture, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy, that means the revelation from God, never came by the will of man. It didn't originate with man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word... Uh, moved means to be, be like the wind blowing a sailing vessel across the ocean. He says, know this first. This is the priority. This is the foundation under everything else. And so literally what he is saying is that every prophecy of Scripture does not come from anyone's own experience or their anyone's ideas or their own explanation, but it is the result of being moved by the Holy Spirit. It's used that way of a sailing vessel in Acts 27:17. I had a quote here from uh, Benjamin Warfield, but it's a long quote, so I'm going to skip it due to time. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The assumption of Scripture is this relates to every Scripture. It's powerful. It is alive. It is, because it's the product of an infinite mind, it has an infinite well of information. And we will study it throughout eternity, and we'll learn more and more about it. Not that it's going to change, but there's more depth to what we can we can study. And as we look at how the scripture uses itself, for example, in 1 Timothy 
Paul connects both Old Testament and New Testament scriptures together. In 1 Timothy 5.18, we read, For the scripture says, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, and then quotes from Luke 10.7, and joining a gospel passage of the New Testament together with an Old Testament passage shows that he views under inspiration both to have equal authority be equally from God. Peter recognized Paul's writings as scripture, 2 Peter 3.16, that Paul uh, wrote many things, uh, speaking of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as as they do also the rest of scripture. The rest of scripture means that he's saying that Paul wrote scripture. Scripture, we could have a simple syllogism here, and I like this because the opening point, God is absolute veracity or truth. Understanding inerrancy means you understand who God is. If you don't understand who God is as the omnipotent creator of all things, then you can't comprehend revelation, inspiration, and inerrancy. And if God is absolute truth, then whatever comes from him is going to be absolute truth and free from error. This is stated in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God can, is not a liar. Second premise, God is the source of the scriptures, which we've seen in 1 Timothy 3.16. Therefore, the scriptures must be absolute truth. John 17.17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And so if these uh, basic points of the syllogism are correct, then the whole is correct. Jesus said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That is important. In the Hebrew, this smallest, this jot or tittle, the, the, the chot is really yod in, in the Hebrew. That refers to what looks like a apostrophe to us. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is just the difference between this letter hey and this letter hate. It's that little gap that's closed off right there. That's the difference between those two letters. In English, it would be like the difference between an O and a P, that little leg that comes down, or between a P and an R, the the other leg that comes down on an R, or the difference between a B and a D. And, And so these little differences change the words and change the meanings, bog and dog. Completely different. Reverse that B, you've got a totally different noun. Rug and pug, the difference is a tittle. So Jesus is saying that the every stroke is significant and inspired by God because it affects letters and it affects words and therefore it affects ideas. It's not the ideas that are inspired, it's the words. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In the Greek, he says, I and the Father are one. The word is hen, which is a neuter singular, meaning they are one in essence. If he had used the word haste, it would have been a masculine singular, and that would have been we are the one, we are one person. So the fact that, that you have the difference between neuter and masculine indicates a difference between one in essence and one in person. One in person would mean that you have a strict Unitarian monotheism. Uh, 
One in essence means you have a trinity. In Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, that is Christ. The difference between the singular and the plural is the difference between truth and error. And so the inspiration of Scripture extends down to the parts of speech. That's why we emphasize grammar. And it extends down to the very details of Revelation. So what's the implication for us? The implication is that if God is spoken, then we need to pay attention. That God has spoken in a way that we can understand. So we need to study it, we need to read it, and we need to think about it because the understanding may not come just instantaneously. We may have to spend time thinking about it, reflecting upon it. And we can trust it because if the Scripture is true, then when it speaks about Jesus as the Son of God who died for us, then we can count on that. But if the Scripture is not true about some facet of history or geography or life, if it's not true about the resurrection of those Old Testament saints at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, then how do we know that it's true about sin? How do we know that it's true about what is necessary to be saved? How do we know that it's true about how we are to live? We don't. So either all of the Bible is inerrant in its original revelation or it's not. And if it's not, we, we have no confidence in what we believe. So inerrancy and inspiration, inerrancy and interpretation are critical for understanding salvation, the spiritual life, in fact, every aspect of life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon the nature of your word today. We look forward to this conference and what we will learn and how we will be challenged in our thinking that we may gain greater confidence in the truth of your word and of its uh, power in our lives and your authority in our lives. Father, we pray that anyone listening would come to understand that the truth of your word teaches that we are all sinners and that we are all under condemnation, but that you have provided a perfect solution through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, and that by trusting in him, by having faith only in him, we can have eternal life. And it's our prayer that anyone listening who has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today and what we'll learn during this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.